What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. So the 40 years experience, three major championships to his belt. Mike Hicks is an icon of the caddy fraternity. Listen to this great new podcast as Mike talks about the experience of caddying for all the great players over time, who he's seen, who's the best, and let's relive the 1999 US Open, won by the late great Payne Stewart. All right, welcome Mike Hicks to the Bradley Hughes podcast. For those of you that have not heard of Mike, just watch the 1999 US Open at Pinehurst and you'll see exactly who we're talking about. But I always ask people when I first speak to them, what's, how did you get into golf? I'm always fascinated by how people get into golf, whether, you know, in your job now as a caddy, but previously I'm sure it was just a love of playing. Well, I played in high school a little bit. I was more of a baseball player. Uh, basketball, but I played some golf, but I used to, in the summer times, I would caddy for my pastor at the time on Tuesdays. It was, it was uh, all the pastors in the area would play at this one club and I would caddy for him and give me five bucks, you know, and as a 12, 13, 14 year old, you know, that was decent money back in those days. Um, so I, that's how I kind of got into it, you know, caddying for him and, you know, I'd play with my friends. I never played on the golf team in high school. It was baseball season, so I was always playing baseball. But um, I went to college for turf grass management, so I was going to learn how to be a greenskeeper. So I did love golf. Um, and uh, that didn't – I went for a year and a half and was going to change my major and went out, had a friend caddying on the road at the time on the – on the tour, there was only about 60 guys at the time that were traveling. So I just joined the bandwagon and here I am still 42 years later. <laughs> yeah. Was that like, uh, there's a lot of guys that did that. Like I had Bruce Edwards picked up uh, Tom Watson in the car park and I'm sure disco Dennis and all those guys. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so what is the greatest part of your job? What do you think? I think being able to adapt to the different personalities. I mean, uh, and you knew pain. Pain was, you know, depending on what side of the bed he woke up on as to what kind of mood he was in. And then I guess later, right before, you know, his last year of his life, they figured out that he had that ADHD or whatever. So he was, and it made sense because pain really never got to a level of concentration unless it was a Ryder Cup or a major. If he was playing the John Deere Classic, he, he could be, you know, kind of all over the place mentally. But the, the big tournaments, the, especially the Ryder Cup, I mean, he could he could dial it in mentally. Um, so I would say being able to adjust to the different personalities. I mean, since his passing, I've had uh, numerous guys. You know, and I've won five, five with five different players. So you have to be able to adapt to the personality that you're working for and uh, so I think that's the biggest strength uh, as a caddy. 
Yeah, I remember, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but at one point, Payne had like needles in his ears, like acupuncture or something to try and help him concentrate better. Is that right? That's exactly right. And, and, and what it really boiled down to with him, I mean, and, you know, Payne had a great career, but early on, I mean, he would get in the mix and on Sunday, he just could not close the deal. I mean, the first four tournaments I caddied for him, he could have won all four. We top tended all four weeks. Um, but until we hired Dr. Richard Coop, the sports psychologist, who basically all he did was tell Payne to focus on, the, on an intermediate target, which is a spot foot and a half, two feet in front of the ball, and concentrate on that spot and forget what was in front of them, whether it was water, out of bounds, whatever, a big tree, whatever. If he focused on that spot and got his ball started over that spot, um, he, you know, the ball was going to end up pretty good. So once he learned to just forget about what was in front of him and, you know, pick the intermediate target, which really Nicholas started all that. Um, but then after Nicholas, everybody, you know, that has been, you know, great at this game has done it. Um, and that, that took him, that took him to another level. And, uh, once he, uh, once he got that down, well, you know, three majors later, you know, he had a great career. And you caddied for him in all three majors that he won, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So obviously the 99 one was probably the most exciting, just the dramatic of it all at the end, but. Which one do you remember the most? Well, I remember that one the most. I mean, um, and that was in my home state. So it was a, you know, it was a special, special thing. Went in the U.S. Open in my home state. Having pain spend the night in my house on Sunday night, um, you know, with the U.S. Open trophy and probably 20 of my closest friends, that, that is a, a memory I'll never forget. That never happens where, where the guy that wins the tournament and it being a major is going to come spend spend the night at his caddy's house. So, <laughs> uh, you know that that that'll always be my fondest memory for sure. And what about the first major? That was uh, the nine eighty nine. Uh, yeah, eighty nine PGA. PGA, and you know, I mean, we were standing on the tenth tee, and Jerry Pate was working for ABC, and he comes up on the tee, and we were we were six behind, I think, at the time. And Payne looked at Jerry Paints as I'm going to shoot 30 this side. And I don't know whether that's going to be good enough, but I'm shooting 30. Well, he shoots 31. Mike Reed, you know, had a train wreck coming in, and we end up winning the tournament. Um, and then the 91 U.S. Open was uh, was playoff with Scott Simpson. So, you know, that, that week was a strange week, the 91 U.S. Open, because Payne had a bad, you know, he had a bad back, but his back was really bad that week. I mean, we did we did very minimal preparation for that tournament. I mean, he saw the golf course a couple times, um, didn't do anything on Wednesday, wasn't even sure he was going to be able to play. And lo and behold, we went in a playoff. So um, that's what I remember about that week. But Pinehurst for sure is going to be the mm – -hmm the most memorable one. And the US Open was obviously big to him. I've seen backstories of his father. You know, right. Made him wanted to play in or he did play in it. And, and, you know, US Open, Father's Day national title, very yes. patriotic person. So I'm sure, you know, all things being equal, what happened a few months later was 
tragic, but I, I guess he went out with the perfect uh, end result there, winning that tournament. No question, winning that and the Ryder Cup. They won the Ryder Cup that year, so in dramatic fashion there at Brookline. So, yeah, I mean, if he was going out, that was he was on top for sure. I, I played that US Open at Pinehurst and we had a house. I'm not sure exactly how far away. It wasn't too far away. Let's call it a mile or a mile and a half. And you'd know on TV there's a little tape delay. But we could hear the roar of that putt at the house a couple of miles away before he'd actually hit it or before he even saw it go in. So we sort of yeah. knew the result. It was, it was pretty awesome to, to hear something to that magnitude that far away. It's like an earthquake. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was, there were so many people around that hole, around that hole, the pretty much lined the fairways, and they're not by the green. I mean, there were people, there were people everywhere around that green. So yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a roar for sure. You got higher than Phil Mickelson when you jumped too. I saw. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what, Bradley. It's a funny story. Uh, you know, I was doing the, the reason Payne spent the night with me that night is because I was doing a uh, a charity event, a little skins game with him. It was Payne, Fred Couples, Paul Azinger, and Hal Sutton, and they were they were doing a little we were doing a little skins game to uh, raise money for the North Carolina Children's Hospital. So, and this is the God honest truth. I'm standing over there when he's lining this putt up, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? <laughs> I had Neil Lancaster on hold just in case something happened with somebody. And as it turned out, it was going to be pain, you know, maybe in a playoff. So I'm thinking we're going to play off on Monday. Um, and I'm over there thinking, you know, I'm going to have to call Neil Lancaster to fill in for pain and worried about how many people are going to show up. And, you know, and then, and then you're also in the back of your mind, you know, you had Phil Mickelson. I mean, if Amy goes into labor, he's leaving. So we might even win by default. So, I mean, a lot of things going through my mind while he was lining that putt up. Um, but, you know, it was all for, it was all a moot point. You can't take any credit for reading the putt or anything, can you? No. I'm going to tell you something. That's what I, that's what, when I said earlier that, you know, he had, he only focused, really focused on the majors and at the Ryder Cup, where he could totally get in tune with what was happening. I didn't do anything for him that week, but do the yardage, gave him some wind. I helped him with a layup club on the 10th hole. The rest of the time, I shot the numbers out to him, told him where the wind was, what I thought it was playing, he pulled the club out. And that was a rare, that was rare week. I mean, but you could see he was so in tune with what he was doing. Um, and I think a big was a, a big part of that was the fact that he had gotten in contention the, the year before at Olympic Club and proved to himself they could still do it because you know we had a we had a five year stretch there where he couldn't beat anybody. You know, signing that top flight deal, playing that ball. The clubs, I mean, nothing that he did, nothing that he, uh, not to put top flight, you know, in a bad light, but uh, the equipment and the ball was just not conducive to Payne Stewart golf. Yeah, that's right. I remember he had a little bit of a lull there. A lot of people will probably blame the equipment, and I'm sure that was part of the deal, especially if you've used one style of ball or one look of club over well, your whole career. He, 
he went from a titleist that was spinning it back in those days, you know, I don't know, off the driver and the irons, the, you know, the, the spin, you know, he, he, the spin went up to in the 7,000s with this new top light ball. And they gave him clubs that had square grooves and offset. So you got a ball spinning that much with offset, with square grooves. The ball flight went straight up in the air. So he to try and compensate the ball flight, his swing got a little out of plane. You know, he's more of a cover and trying to keep the ball down. And it, it just messed him up big time. How long did it take for him to understand that or work it out? Or he just had to persevere for a while with the contract? Or he, just for, uh, he had to persevere for a couple of years. And then he finally started figuring it out. They got better with the equipment. They got him off the square groove irons, got him in some decent blades. The, the, the ball got better. So he ended up starting to play some decent golf the last couple of years of that contract. But then once it was up, he went no club company. I mean, when we went in Pinehurst, he didn't have any deal. We play. He was playing, you know, Mizuno irons, a Titleist driver. Uh, um, he had a ping lob wedge, he, the Seymour putter. He had no contract with anybody. The Titleist golf ball, blank so, bag. Yeah. So I mean, he would just went back and played any anything that you know what he wanted to play, and. Um, and then the, the game turned around, you know, his game. He played really nice that whole year in 99. A lesson to be learned there. Um, I know, I think his first win back was Houston Open. Now, was that, um, was that correct? In 95. That was during the top flight stuff. And that I was, was going to uh, say, yeah. You know, that was during the top flight stuff. He, he played great that week somehow. I mean, it was very inconsistent. He played great. And then Scott Hope kind of, you know, same thing as Mike Reed. He kind of, uh, he, you know, spit the bit, so to speak, coming in and allowed us to to jump in there and win one. But um, for the most part, his golf was very inconsistent, inconsistent during that, that five-year stretch with, with uh, top flight. You would call Payne a character, wouldn't you? Surely, I know. He used to have yeah. a bit of fun and... <laughs> I've, yeah. I've hung out with him a few times in Canada and hotel bars and had a, had a good time, but he did certainly calm down later on in that period. And I know, you know, he got very involved with the, the bracelet, with the what would Jesus do and all that. And do you believe right. that was a big turning point in his life that he had to take control of other things before he could take control of himself? Absolutely. You know, I think he he, um, he got saved and came to Christ in 98. So um, and a big part of that was his kids getting him to go. You know, they were going to a Christian school. He got involved with the church there that um, where the kids were going to school, started going to a Bible study. And, you know, and he was a totally different person probably the last year and a half of his life. So uh, that had a, that played a big, big part for sure. Now, the, speaking of characters, you want to run through a few of the caddies that are characters? As I mean, we may not have enough videotape to do this, but there's a lot of guys out there that, you know, it was a lot more uh, fun, I guess, or um, travelling well, circus than it is now. I mean, the Brit, I mean, what a character he was, you know. I mean, he was he was a funny guy. You know, I'll tell you, Bradley, the the – 
the caddy yard is a little different now. I mean, you got a lot of ex-players caddying now. A lot of guys that tried to play professionally, play professionally, uh, are now caddying um, because they weren't good enough or didn't have the – they might have been good enough but didn't have the, the mental part of it. They just didn't have the whole package. So now they're now they're caddying. So you have a lot of guys now that are ex-pros that are caddying. A lot of the characters, uh, you know, there's just not many of them anymore. You know, there's no – there are not many guys that go and drink all all night, show up, a, you know, still drunk. You don't see that anymore. Like Basil. Um, like the Basil. Um, so, yeah, it's a totally different profession now, uh, I should say. And, 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 it's, and it's gotten better as far as the way we're treated at the, at the actual tournament now and by the PGA Tour. And a lot of guys have brought friends out too, haven't they? They've sort of even not even bothered with having a true caddy, just have a friend on the bag to help them keep calm or on the way around. Well, I mean, McElroy's guy, Harry, he's a good friend of his. I mean, he did he did uh, try to play. So Harry's an ex uh, player. I mean, he 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 went he came to he was going to go to college over here. He came and um, spent a semester, I think, and then went back home. Didn't come back, but. You know, he, he's an ex-player, I think, but he's a he's a he's also a mate, you know. I mean, so and Rory, when he came out, JP, JP's a great caddy. You know, JP's had a lot of success with a lot of different guys. Um, but Rory went the the friend route. Um but the the characters are they're not they're not many left. Uh, uh Mick, the caddies for Terrell Hatton, he's he's a cat he's a character. He's a He's probably the biggest character on the European tour that's still doing it. Um, but, yeah, there's just not many left. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I played first played in Europe in 1990, and there was uh, Billy Foster and Mick as well there and, like, a bunch of those guys. I, and I still see them now, I think. I can't believe I've known you for over 30 years and you're still doing your job out there, traveling, the, traveling around carrying a bag. It's it's a tough life, but some of them had it, have had it good. You know, it's nice to see Billy finally getting rewarded. You know, he got his major, and, you know, he's got a really great player. He's making tons of money now, so I'm happy for him. Um, you know, he paid his dues and, you know, went through a lot. With I mean, Westwood made him a lot of money, but Westwood, you know, didn't win as many tournaments as he should have. Um, no fault of Billy Foster's, obviously. Um, but it was nice to it was nice to see him get that US Open last year. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode. Bradley Hughes Golf offers you countless ways to become better at this infuriating game. Go to BradleyHughesGolf.com to see all my lesson options for online or in-person instruction. If visual help is more your style, then you should sign up for my members site, BradleyHughesGolf-members.com. With over 500 videos and articles already on display, the member site is the most interesting and most informative platform on the internet for all things golf. My three ebooks, The Great Ball Strikers, The 430 Path to Great Golf, and Ben Hogan, The Secrets to His Success, have all received five star ratings and are the most insightful reading material you can utilize while on your path to improvement. See BradleyHughesGolf.com and look under the ebooks category under the lessons tab.
Bradley Hughes Golf, where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. So um, in the old days, I'm sure I'm not talking past your era, but at some point in the old days, most or a lot of the players didn't take their caddies over to England for the Scotland for the British Open. Did you tend to go over with pain a lot or lag behind I did. a few times? I started my first one, I think uh, I went with Curtis in 86 maybe. The 85, 86, I went over with Curtis. Um, and I ended up working, I've, I, I'm pretty sure the number is 18 straight British Opens or Open Championships. That's my favorite tournament. Yeah, it's a lot of people's favorite uh, tournament. Open, granted, granted, I won it twice. Could have won it four times had Lee Jansen not been born. But uh, uh, the Open Championship is my favorite tournament. I can't wait to get back over there you know, at Hoy Lake this year, you know, Brendan's, Brendan's in the tournament. So I'm looking forward to that week. Uh, I would love to, to get that one. That's always been a, a dream of mine is to win that British open. So, uh, I got a good player for it. I mean, be tied if he gets a flat stick going and drives it in play, he could contend in that. I think he could, he could very, he could contend in a, in a British, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, you know, not a soft condition one, a little bit of running fairways and everything. Yeah, we'll need a we'll need one firm and fast, but I think that gives him, you know, you look at this US Open this year, all the US Open courses now are just huge courses, you know? Right. And the PGA, you never know what what they're set up, what that's gonna be like. Um, and then Augusta, they've you know, they've pretty much taken out half the field. He's got no chance to win in there unless it's hard and fast, which yeah. is very fair. But a British Open, uh, I feel like Brendan's got a good shot at contending in, in that. Yeah, I hope so. Um, obviously, I played with Payne a few times. You were caddying. And then interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, you were working for Brant Snedeker and I was working with him. And now you get in for Brendan Todd, who I work with. So we see a fair yeah. bit of each other. Yeah, we do. We in do. In fact, we saw each other just last week. I did a little lesson with your son trying to get his game. He's got some goods on him and that's going to be, uh, will that be your goal once you sort of hang up the caddying thing that you try and just nourish him and feed him into what he wants to possibly achieve or do? You know, probably I'm probably going to stay in the golf industry somehow. Whether it's being a working at a club doing the carts, or you know, I teach a little bit, you know, on the side. Not not very much anymore. I was doing a lot more of it when I was living in North Carolina, but here in Tennessee now, we're not uh, we're not kind of in. We're not too familiar with the community yet, so. Um, but I'm sure once I quit caddying, I'll uh, I'll stay in the golf business to some point in some aspect. Yeah, you can't uh, retire until you get at least one more major. Would love to get one. Absolutely. <laughs> Describe yourself as a golfer, Hixie. What's that? Describe yourself as a golfer rather than a caddy. As a golfer, I'm a really good putter. My short game's pretty good. Um I don't strike it the way I used to. I quit playing for a few years. Just this son we have now that's gotten into it. He's just gotten into it in the last couple of years. So once my son Jacob left, I went off to college, 
and then left and got married. I pretty much hung them up. I didn't touch them for, I don't know, three or four years. Um, but now I'm getting back into it. Um, been practicing as a, I'm right now. I'm, you know, today I shot three over for 18. I had it three under and ended up making a couple of triples on the back nine to shoot three over. So I'm starting to get back into it and uh, just joined a club here at 1913 Tilling House. It's called the Johnson City Country Club. It's only 6,400 yards long, but it is so much fun to play. I can't even tell you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that. I'm, so, yeah, I'm getting back into it. I'm loving it. So you're a bit of a stick then at golf. Three under through so many holes is pretty good. Do you think yeah. it matters for go- uh, caddy? their standard of golf? Do you think it helps to be a good player? Obviously, you would think so. Absolutely. You You have to play. You have to, you know, the more you play, um, the more you're better at judging lies out of the rough, the better you are at reading the greens. Um, You know, I think Brendan has started to lean on me a little more around the greens with with, uh, certain shots. Um, I I have been reading a lot of his putts. I read them beautifully at – Oh, I don't even know where we were. Colonial, maybe, or uh, I don't know. I had a really good week reading for him, and he's been calling me in more and more now. And you know, he's top five in the world putter. I'll put him up against anybody. I mean, he's a great putter. And I and I said to him, it was like when Snedeker would ask me. I said, "You're asking me, and you're one of the best putters in the world." But all they really looking for is confirmation. They're seeing. Brendan on fat. Oh, at the PGA, that's where I was reading them. At the PGA, you know, the, Brendan has a as a his mo is he plays. He doesn't play enough break on fast screen, and it he plays less break and hits it too hard. That's how what I've seen on really fast screens with him. So he's he started to. Uh, oh, at uh, Charlotte, I read him well for him at Charlotte too, because those greens were lightning, and I was always on the high line and. Um, he liked that. He's and his speed has gotten better, you know, with the on the faster greens. Um, so, so you're, helping enjoy- him, you're helping him air the putt out a bit more, like yes, softer and higher. Yeah. yeah, a little higher with the lines, a little less speed. You know, you don't want to work, you know, real hard on the on your next putt. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, I agree with so that. We, <laughs> We want that. We want that next one a foot or two around the hole. So you rated Brendan one of the top five putters, and I'd probably agree with you. So you've seen a lot of golfers. What's your perfect golfer? If you could run through, let's say, the perfect driver, perfect long iron, mid iron, short iron, short game, and putter. Who who would be the best you've seen in each department? Putter, I would have to say. Um, Probably Faxon, as far as the putting goes. He was, or Crenshaw. Crenshaw was incredible too. Um, and then Speed was was great for five years from twenty feet. Tiger, great putter, obviously. Um, the long irons, obviously, you got to go with Woods. Driver of the ball, Norman probably drove the ball better than anybody as far as distance and accuracy. Would you agree with that? I think so, from what I've seen. I mean, nor I mean, Tiger. I mean, Tiger drove it great, but Tiger 
it, Norman drove it up a gnat's butt. You know, I mean, it was just a missile, a straight missile, pretty much every time. Um, so I'd have to say he was the best driver that I ever watched. Um, you know, and, and Payne was a great iron player. I mean, he really was. He was a great iron player. Um, you know, Woods probably Woods probably out as far as mental goes. I'd have to say Tiger was the best of all time up there with Jack. Um, uh, but Tiger, Tiger beat him with strength too. You know, Tiger could hit it in the rough, and there wasn't a you couldn't grow the rough high enough in his heyday for him not to get it out. So I think that was his big advantage was his strength. That's interesting because uh, when I did one of these with Steve Williams, he said the exact same thing. He said Tiger was the best rough player he'd ever seen. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Um, <clears throat> you know, and he 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 changed the game. Now all these kids are all you know they're all weightlifters. They're all strong. You know, I mean, when you were coming up, I mean, nobody worked out. Now, the guys would go and have, you know, Norman, and I remember Norman saying he wished he had gotten a massage every week, you know, just to keep his body loose and his and his muscles, you know, stretched out. Um, but Tiger changed the game. All these guys now, they're all fit. You know, they're all in bed at a decent hour. They're not drinking at night. Um, he really took the game to another level as far as the fitness goes. Now, we did see, uh, you mentioned Norman, and I agree, the best driver. But see if you can remember this. We were doing a practice round at Riviera with Kepka one day, with Snedeker, <laughs> and we watched him play nine holes. And I remember talking to you going up the 17th hole. I said, I've never seen anyone drive the ball this good since Norman. And you yeah. sort of looked at me and you said, I don't know how you beat him. If he putts any good, how can you beat this guy? Yeah, right. Yeah. He was, I he was hitting at 300 straight up the middle of the fairway, hitting five irons into the par fives at Riviera. It was a joke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Tiger, Tiger. you know, what's, what's incredible about Tiger is that he beat these guys changing his golf swing, what, three times? Right. Three different coaches, three different planes, and – and it's no wonder that his body is the way it is other than, you know, the fact that he was in a car wreck, but all the surgeries, but, and I don't have to tell you, you're, you're an ex player and an ex and, and a current coach, the amount of balls that you have to hit to be able to, you know, not perfect, but to, to get it to where you, you win tournaments. I mean, that's staggering. Is it not? Yeah. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. Just so, look at I mean, Alex Norrin's hands. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that guy's not on the shelf already, the way he goes through at impact. I can't believe he doesn't have arms and wrists and hands. You know, it's just amazing. So what's your plans um, in the future when you ride off into the sunset? You said you're going to maybe work at a golf club. Any any trips yeah. you want to go? Anywhere you haven't been in the world you want to go? <clears throat> I have uh, grandchildren in Rhode Island. I'm going to have grandchildren or grandchild in California. I'm going to have a grandchild here in Tennessee. So, you know, 
we've toyed with the idea of just buying an RV and just kind of uh, living out of that for a few years and driving around the country. I don't know whether we'll do it or not, but we have talked about it. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. <laughs> have you ever been to Australia? I'm, I'm, the amount of times we've hung out, I don't think I've ever asked you that question. Yes, I have. I was down for uh, the match play at the Metropolitan Club for Justin Leonard. Um, great time. Oh, I had a great time. Loved the country. Just loved it. Uh, would love to go back. Haven't been back since, but um, would love to go back, spend time, just be wonderful people, great, great place. And, and the golf courses, I wish we did more uh, design the way they design them in Australia. I love the, 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 how the bunkers were so sharp edged um, and how the green basically rubbed, there was no fringe. The green, you had, you had the the edge of the bunker, and then the green went right up to it. I just loved that design. Yeah, it looks cool. So cool. Metropolitan um, is famous for that. That's that's kind of one of the highlighted courses that do that. Oh, I just loved that look. I thought it was awesome. You know, growing up in Melbourne, it was always interesting to me when I did start to travel and play other places that I didn't realize how good the golf was in Melbourne, just because it was what I it's kind of all I knew. But it's, right. it's cool to hear all the other guys that end up going there and are thrilled out of their brain how good the, the courses are. I was really lucky to, to be a part of that growing up. Yeah, you were you were blessed to be able to play those play that type of golf. Um, you know, and the, the the golf over here is you know like this course I just joined. That is more of old style uh, a worldwide kind of golf architecture. You know, the, there's lots of slope. The ball's rolling. You know, you, you're able to to run the ball up. Uh, you know, and then you then you look at what we just came from at Memorial, where everything's forced carry at Jack's place. You know, totally different golf. I enjoy the uh, the European and the Australian golf a lot better. I think most people would uh, that that just play for fun. Um, but you know, we we. Uh, you know, in the American golf, I mean, we're, you know, and another thing that gets me over here, I mean, I walk a lot when I play. Um, I have played my best rounds of golf when I've walked. Um, and then over here, you know, it's everybody's in a golf cart. Let's, you know, play as fast as we can. Instead of enjoying the, the day and enjoying the golf, you see more of the golf course when you're walking. Yeah, I think you learn more about the golf course when you walk. I just wish there was a bit more of it here in the states. Um, I think just too many, too much riding going on. Could not agree more with all that. That was that's like a man from my own heart. There, yeah, you do. You get to feel the contours. You get to see a little bit more, and you know it doesn't take much longer anyway. By the time you ride a golf cart, you're sitting up there for five minutes waiting for your next shot anyway. So I agree 100%. Yeah. Like today, we, we had rain last <clears throat> night. So of course, we played this morning, cart path only. I walked more back and forth to that stupid cart. I was also playing with an 81-year-old friend today. So, you know, it, we, we couldn't have walked this course. It was very, you know, we're kind of in the mountains here, and it's a very hilly course. We could have never walked it. But um, I spent more time walking back and forth to the cart, you know. <laughs> 
than if I had just walked the course myself. So I like that I I like that you like the ground game because someone asked me in a podcast once, you know, why I probably didn't play as well in America or didn't win in America anyway. And I said, I think it's to do a little bit more. I just didn't see the shots. I never saw seven irons landing 15 foot past and coming back. Where yeah. I grew up, I, I was more land at 15 foot short and bounce it up. So yeah. I had a harder, harder time seeing. And that's, I'm sure that's part of the fascination and love that you have for England and Scotland and over there too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my, my favorite golf course in the world is North Berwick, which in Scotland, that's my favorite course ever. Um, and I've played it numerous times. And um, it's just, you know, it's just great golf. It's great fun. I've not played there, but I've got it on my list. Mike Clayton yeah. talks about that place too a lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's fun. It is so much fun. All right, mate. Well, appreciate you talking. We'll let you go. I'm going to see you next week at the Travels Championship. All right, brother. Thanks, mate. No worries. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, Bradley Hughes Golf hyphen members.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.